What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Here in Apologetics, presented by you, as always. You can support the show at patreon.com slash adhereinapologetics. Today, I'm here with John DePew. If you don't know who he is, who he is stay for the, at least, maybe for the theology. Uh, he's the director of faith formation at Good Shepherd United Church of Christ. He's also a graduate of Duke Divinity School. Uh, what's up, John? How you doing? Doing good, man. How are you? I'm good, man. I'm looking forward to this, talking about this idea of the apocalyptic Paul. It sounds kind of like scary, uh, mysterious, maybe. Um, yeah. A bit terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to this. Um, for anyone who is listening and has no idea what I think about the apocalyptic Paul, I know like basically nothing on this topic. So it's kind of like coming here, having John talking a little bit about this whole idea of who Paul was and kind of you know stuff like that. We'll find more out later. Uh, so to start off, John, just very basically, like who are you and what you do? What do you do? Just in case someone doesn't know who this John DePew man is. Yeah, so I'm John. I uh, work as the director of faith formation, which is basically just a fancy way of saying I direct the Christian education programs at a church in Cary, North Carolina. I've been doing that for about three years. Um, I graduated from Duke in 2016. I've been in North Carolina for about seven years now. Um, originally from Iowa, did my bachelor's degree at Simpson College, as we were just talking about before the stream. Mm -hmm. um, in uh, philosophy and religious studies um yeah i spend a lot of time reading nerdy stuff about paul and watching baseball it's kind of, it's kind of me hey maybe i'll make you a soccer fan one day soccer's where it's at yeah i i do like soccer i just haven't gotten into it so maybe you can persuade me liverpool just just root for liverpool that's the only thing i'll say about okay soccer. good enough yeah right there so, just to start off, um, you know, Liverpool is the best team, but about this Paul stuff, um, you know, for someone like most people that might have no idea what this whole apocalyptic Paul thing is, so like in a very basic sense, like, I mean, you're not a father, but if you're going to explain it to like a five-year-old or a six-year-old, um, who is this apocalyptic Paul? Yeah, so it's actually pretty simple. Um, so the apocalyptic Paul, what we're saying when we use that phrase is we're saying that paul's gospel his proclamation about jesus is centered on a revelation of jesus so apocalypse is just a fancy word for revelation okay mm -hmm. uh so it's it's saying that we start our analysis of paul the way that paul started his thinking about god which was he was confronted with a revelation of god which revealed him the truth about god um revealed to him the character about god god is loving god is personal um, god is a communion of persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, so yeah, it's all, that's really all it's saying is that we begin our analysis of Paul with the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then a, a sort of more robust reading flows from there when we go to different texts in Paul. But yeah, that's really kind of the basic point. Yeah, so I'm guessing like this idea of the apocalyptic Paul it just changes like maybe like how you read Paul. Um, like what what does it change from like, you know, you someone who grows up in church and hears about this guy named Paul who writes seven to thirteen books of the New Testament? Um like what does it change about Paul from a tr from a traditional sense? Yeah, good question. So there there I think there are lots of ways that it, it sort of puts pressure on the traditional reading and kind of says, hang on a minute, this isn't quite lining up with the text. But I, I think a few of the the few of the ways that it it uh, kind of departs from the traditional reading um, first would be 
its conception of knowledge of God. Um, so the traditional reading kind of rests on an, an initial phase in the gospel where you discover for yourself, you're kind of on a personal individual journey. You discover God by kind of searching the cosmos or kind of looking inward, look at your, study your own conscious and realize, oh, God exists. There's God there. Um, and it turns out that God is really, really irritated with you <laughs> because you failed to obey God and you sin. So it's an individual kind of centered journey of discovery. And you learn about God by observing the things around you or by turning kind of inward on yourself and finding God there. So the knowledge of God is really up to you. You figure it out. You're kind of the center of that, that process, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's you discovering it. Now, the apocalyptic reading is kind of the reverse of that. You don't go and find God. God comes and finds you and discloses to you what God is really like. So the knowledge is really, to put it a bit more kind of technically, the knowledge is, is uh, a posteriori as against a priori, right? Mm -hmm. It's retrospective as against prospective, okay? So yeah, so one thing I want to just jump in right here before we keep on going is mm -hmm. someone may say you sound like a Calvinist right now. You know, you have this idea of depravity and God kind of removing the stone or whatever you want to call it, you know, enlightening you. Um, so I'm guessing you differ from a Calvinist. Can you just kind of like clarify here? Yeah, sure. So what I'm not saying is that sin is something you discover for yourself, that you, fi you figure out that you're totally depraved by like looking at the law, or which just tends to be how people talk about it. The law just... Re reveals that you're guilty and you can't kind of get your way out of that guilt <laughs> on your own, right? What I'm saying is that it's only in the light of Jesus and his revelation of the truth that we understand what sin really is and its seriousness. We understand that we're in the grip of something that has distorted our will and distorted our thinking, distorted our acting. So we're kind of in prison. So Paul likes to talk about sin in terms of a power that constrains you. He uses enslavement language and incarceration language. But we don't figure out that we're enslaved while we're in that situation. God needs to show it to us in Jesus. And then we realize, oh, shoot, this has been the problem that we've been sort of involved with all along. So that's kind of where I would differ from Calvinists. I think they think that you can kind of know it. <laughs> um, kind of on, you can just sort of see it, that you're sinful, that you're guilty. I'm saying, no, you don't. Jesus has to show that to you. <laughs> and then you can address that stuff. Hmm. So. so what do you think about like the tradition like how do you interpret like the traditional view would be we have some sort of like general revelation of god and his creation um and then you have kind of like the idea that the law is written on our hearts so like without even like some sort of like special revelation that we would know what's right and wrong i'm guessing you would disagree with that traditional stance uh it, yeah i mean it's traditional is an interesting word to use for that uh but I know what you mean, mm -hmm. where you have a distinction between a general revelation and specific revelation. And general revelation is is talked about in terms of what everyone has access to, regardless yeah. of Jesus or whatever. I'm not so uh, comfortable taking that on board, really, at least not in terms of a starting point. I think our starting point in terms of knowledge of God isn't actually the general revelation. It's, it's going to be Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, once we have that revelation... We can see where God is showing up everywhere else in the world mm -hmm. through nature, going on a beautiful hike. You can see God um, in, in through the things that God has made, right? But I think it's got to be under the control of Jesus. We can't just go out and try and find God and say, ah, there's God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's right there. Uh, 
So I would I would handle a text from that you alluded to in Romans two, the law being written on the heart of, of pagans. I see that situated in a different sort of uh, rhetorical discourse uh, mm -hmm. that Paul is uh, kind of developing throughout Romans one to three, which would take way too much time to talk about here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've seen a little bit of what you're yeah. talking about. But I, I think he's he's doing something different than just saying people have the law written on their heart so they can know mm -hmm. God. So yeah. I, it, he's got a larger argument that he's doing. Yeah, I got you. Um, we have an interesting question here, a super chat for Spartan Theology. It kind of goes along with what we were talking about. Um, thank you, Ethan, for the super chat. He says, did Paul believe he was a sinner before Jesus revealed it to him? So that's an interesting question kind of with this theology. Sure. Um, yeah, it, it depends on what you mean by sin and sinner. I think because Paul is a Jew... He had a conception of sin that he was a part of. So in a basic sense, yeah, he thought he was he was a sinner, I guess. I don't know if you would use that language um, about himself. At the same time, he thought he was pretty awesome at being a Jew, which is what we get from Philippians. He thought he was the best at it. He excelled among all of his peers in understanding the Torah and practicing the Jewish practices, right? So he, he, wasn't, seemed, he wasn't really plagued with a sense of, of guilt or anything like that prior to Jesus showing up, which is a mistake I think a lot of people make. They assume that Paul was really guilt-ridden and that kind of pressured him to find Jesus. When we don't really see that in this text, he thought he was a pretty awesome Jew. Uh, and then Jesus showed up and said, nope, you're not, <laughs> you're not. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what, how I would handle that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, Ethan always can add more if he just feels like destroying you um, theologically. Uh, so I love that. I know obviously the whole Romans 1 through 3 thing can be yeah. very complicated from what I've, I've very, very literally dived. That's not a word. Um, I've dived into this not so much at all. Um, mm -hmm. This whole Romans 1 through 3 thing. But if you if you had like a minute or two to sum up like your interpretation of what's going on here, because it's a very different view than how most people would read the book of Romans. Can you talk about like what you see that's going on here? Yeah. So the, the briefest way to say, to, to say this is that Paul in Romans 1 to 3, specifically starting with 118, um, through 320. So that kind of big chunk of text is where I think the action is happening. I think what he's doing is he's setting up what's called a Socratic argument, which was actually a staple in the ancient world in terms of rhetorical device and argumentation. He would have learned to do this kind of thing in high school, in the ancient equivalent of high school. Uh, he would have learned how to kind of engage with an opponent in this way. So what I see in Romans 1 to 3, and this is on sort of building on Douglas Campbell's work in his book, The Deliverance of God, what I think he's doing is that there's actually a third party in view. There is an opponent or a group of opponents that Paul is trying to address in the opening chapters, who are seeming to preach a very different gospel than what Paul is committed to. So what I think you get in Romans 1, 18 to 32, which is the the kind of opening of what I think is his opponent's position. So he's setting up an opponent's position in 118 to 32, um, the person he's unhappy with. And then in 2.1 through to the rest of 3, he's slowly engaging the opening premises of his teacher's position and showing how they kind of collapse in on themselves. And it's, it's kind of like a reductio ad absurdum, which is like, you said this, and you also said this. These two things don't really line up. Look at how 
dumb you are, basically. Um, you've made these horrible mistakes, and your argument ultimately collapses. And I think that's what happens by the end of, of chapter three. He's showing how his opponent's argument is collapsing. So he's not actually committed to the theology in Romans 1, 18 to 32. He's using it as a rhetorical device to show how this other gospel is problematic and doesn't work. It doesn't work as a, an, an account of God. It doesn't work as a um, an evangelizing kind of theology for pagans. Um, it's actually really poor at engaging with pagans, um, which is exactly what a Jewish Christian uh, missionary would be really embarrassed by. Um, mm. So I think that's kind of what's going on. It's a Socratic argument, which is someone taking someone else's position and kind of exposing the contradictions and tensions within it. Mm. Um, yeah, I think there's a good question from Ethan here that kind of lines up with this, that kind of is in addition to this. It says, is there a church father that specifically speaks of this kind of like Socratic argument? So like, I, I would ask that um, from Ethan and like, do you see any like early uh, church indications or from the church fathers that would kind of support your view of Paul here? Yeah, good question. Um, yeah, uh, so the problem with these sorts of, um, these sorts of rhetorical moves is that once they're, once they're separated from their kind of home culture and situation, the, the cues and the, the rhetoric and kind of the, even the humor in kind of setting someone up and embarrassing them in uh, speaking in somebody else's voice, which I think is what Paul's doing. The kind of, the, the, the auditory and textual cues kind of get lost really, really quickly. So it's, I, I don't think it's actually surprising that some of the early, really all of the early church fathers don't really see this. I think there are a lot of people who see Romans 2 in particular as being just a weird text. It just kind of doesn't make much sense. And people have sort of seen that from um, very early on. But yeah, I would say that it's not really surprising that the early fathers didn't see this either, <laughs> which I think most people don't see it today. Um, it's, just, it's just simply because once it's separated 100 years after, right, mm -hmm. it's kind of lost. Yeah, yeah. The reason which that actually kind of comes through into the readings lost. And it's important to note too, we got to remember that these letters were read out loud. The church wasn't just reading them. They didn't have a Bible like we do and have their own personal text that they could go to. Someone like Phoebe would present the letter, right? And so much of these letters communication to the communities would have been oral, okay? So if Paul's coming in and, and giving Phoebe this letter and saying, you need to present it in this way, um, if people were confused about it at the time, they could just ask Phoebe, what are you talking about? Are you speaking somebody else's voice? What's going on? She could say, this is Socratic. Let's move on, right? So we, we forget that there's actually a sort of auditory dimension to this that would have been lost initially too, so. Yeah, so I think one of the interesting questions here, I don't want to get stuck too much into this whole like Romans thing. Obviously there's so much to this. Oh yeah, can I mention one more thing? Yeah, go for it. Real quick. Um, one of my friends at, uh, at Duke is writing his dissertation on the basically sort of textual cues that introduce the Socratic reading, um, and sort of seeing if any other writers at the time were kind of doing similar things. Mm -hmm. It turns out Philo does this. 
he marks up a speech and character, a Socratic argument, with a, the Greek word gar, which just means for, but he's introducing it. Um, he's using it to actually introduce a speech and character. And pretty much all philo scholars and commentators know he's doing this. And he's using the same word that Paul is using to introduce Romans 1.18. So there's a shift there. And I think we can we can see that in Philo, and it seems like Paul is probably doing the same thing too. So just to add some sort of extra support that there are people who were actually doing this in the ancient world too, and we have record of that, and it's pretty, uh, it's uh, yeah, it's not really that disputed in Philo. It is in Paul because it's weird when it's a very new kind of reading of his text, but yeah. Hmm. Interesting. So one last question here that I have, kind of, as we think about this. Romans passages, I think for a lot of people, they may say, like, it doesn't seem obvious. Like, I mean, obviously, I've read the book of Romans a few times, and obviously, I'm reading it in English, so it's a lot different than reading it in Gwinnett Greek. Um, but for a lot of people, they wouldn't see this, like, if Paul's having some sort of, like, Socratic dialogue here, like, why wouldn't he make it more obvious that he's, like, the the words that you'll see through 118 through verse 32 or 32? What did you say this whole dialogue takes place from? The, bi the big text is 118 to 320, and then the opening is 118 to... Uh, 32. Okay. So, like, why, why wouldn't this be more obvious, like, to us? And because obviously, you know, you talked about this is a minority position. Like, why wouldn't it be more obvious um, that's what's going on? <laughs> yeah. I think you, you indicated something correct, which is we read this in English. So, we kind of lost some of what's going on in, in the Greek. Um, so, we kind of miss the, there's actually a kind of pompous quality to the opening that's very uncharacteristic of Paul to do. It just doesn't feel right. Like the texture of that text when you're reading it is just bizarre. Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of no wonder we don't really see that. Now, in terms of why Paul wouldn't make this more obvious, I think we would want Paul to make it more obvious because we're not hearing this letter mm -hmm. out loud. Yeah. That indicates to me that we're coming to this with our own modern kind of preferences mm -hmm. about what Paul should do for us. And I just don't think he was concerned with that. He knew that people in his congregations could understand this. And I think that's uh, that's really all that, that should matter for that. But I understand it would be awesome if Paul would be like, now I'm speaking in this voice and now I'm <laughs> shifting into this voice, right? Um, but at the same time, that same question could go back on conventional readers of the text too and say, where is Paul saying that he's setting up his theology here mm -hmm. and, and explaining his theology? Yeah. What cues do you have in the text to, to go with that position too so it can kind of be turned on pretty much anyone who, who uh, is confused by this position so yeah yeah, yeah. i got you i'm tracking with you yeah, yeah. so one last question here Ethan just keeps like giving these like perfect questions he's doing all the work for me i can just kind of sit here and listen uh but ethan says are there any other socratic arguments in scripture so like if there's this thing happening here in romans is it happening anywhere else in the bible yeah good question i think some of the uh the psalms have a kind of speech and character quality to them some of the time. It's not quite the same because it's also in a different language um, and it's written by different sorts of people. Um, now in the New Testament, there's, I need to find, look up this text in First Corinthians uh, where you have a kind of, uh, what's kind of like a Socratic kind of back and forth. Um, I don't think you have it really anywhere else in the in the text, though, other than this this specific chunk, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's not really a problem for me um, because it's actually a, a 
it's a reading that comes out of contingency, which is by that I mean Paul is using this argumentation for a specific purpose because he's writing this letter to address a specific problem that's going on in the community. So it's arising out of a circumstance of these teachers who have come around, these these kind of uh, Jewish Christian missionaries, this other kind of rival missionary school is coming around Rome um, and he wants to engage with them before they before they show up so his con congregation knows not to listen to them. Mm -hmm. So it's arising out of that kind of situation. So it's no wonder that we don't see other people kind of doing that because this is so specific. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Um, so point one we had here, basically, I just want to make sure I'm tracking with you, is that instead of kind of like seeing like how um, we see our depravity, our sin, it's kind of like Jesus is revealed to us and we kind of recognize our sin through the revelation of Christ. Is that kind of, That's point one, basically? Yeah. Um, and a part of that revelation, because I wouldn't want to just stop there with a recognition of your sin. Mm -hmm. I think a part of that revelation is also being delivered out of that situation of sin and death and being incarcerated by that. Um, so it's not just you, you getting information, you're also being enfolded into God and saved and delivered and healed from it at the same time. Right. Um, so it's a simultaneity there with salvation and also the knowledge of your sin. Hmm. Okay. So I think that let's just go to like maybe another point here that kind of talks about like, well, how does this apocalyptic Paul change um, from a traditional reading of Paul? Yeah. So I talked about knowledge of God. Um, another thing that it, it, it changes is it's uh, Paul's depiction of Judaism and Jews. Mm -hmm. The traditional reading uh, Jews are kind of framed up as legalistic people who are trying to work their way to salvation, right, through the law. Uh, and they're really generally described negatively. Um, they're, they're kind of the quintessential sinner in the tradi traditional reading. They're the individual who is being sort of uh, confronted with the law and not being able to do it, even though that's the thing they think is going to save them. So there's this kind of feeling of despair and guilt that happens, right? Uh, what happened in the late 70s is a guy named E.P. Sanders, who's a scholar at Duke, wrote a book called Paul and Palestinian Judaism. And what that book did was essentially show that that description of Judaism um, in the Second Temple period is just inaccurate. <laughs> they weren't a bunch of legalists walking around trying to get saved by works. Um, the relationship with God and the relationship with the law was fundamentally covenantal in loving. They did the law because they were in a loving relationship with God and wanted to respond to God and God's commands to them. The, the law was essentially like the Bible functions for us today, where it's a sacred text that we're enjoined to learn from and live our lives ethically in the light of. So that's just how Jews thought of the law and their relationship to God, too. They're in a covenant with God, in a gracious covenant. Um, so the apocalyptic reading kind of picks up on that stuff and says, hang on a minute, this old reading that depicts uh, Jews in terms of this legalistic negative way is simply wrong. What, what Paul actually thinks about Jews generally is that they're in a covenant with God. Now, he does have a problem with certain groups of Jews, right? 
mm-hmm. like the Jewish Christian teacher slash evangelist that I was just talking about in Romans one to three, right? Yeah, he doesn't like that guy, <laughs> but that doesn't mean he doesn't like Jews in general and, th- and thinks they're legalists, right? Mm-hmm. That's a different thing. He's not describe when he's talking negatively about Jews and Judaism in his text from the apocalyptic perspective. He's talking about specific groups of Jews not Jews across time and space. Mm-hmm. Okay? So that's a huge difference. And I think that's where the apocalyptic reading puts pressure on the old one. Hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I think that there's a couple like things that we may think of. I'm just kind of like popping, things are popping into my, my mind as you're talking. And one of them, I think uh, you see in specifically the gospels, you see Jesus very, um, he condemns the Jews a lot. So I think that's kind of where we get this idea of the kind of supports the traditional reading of Paul. So what do you think of like Jesus condemning the Jews in the gospels, especially he's the Pharisees? Yeah, he's condemning the Jewish leadership. He's not condemning all Jews in all times and all, all places because mm-hmm. he is a Jew himself. So that'd be weird. Um, but yeah, I think even Jesus is talking about specific a specific group of Jews. Um, I think even in some of the, um, especially John's gospel kind of gets a bad rap for being kind of anti-Semitic, actually depicting the Jews in this sort of harsh way. But I think he's, he's actually referring to Judeans, which is Jews from a specific place. Um, but yeah, I, I think for the most part, there's no sort of universal condemnation of Jews in, in scripture. It's all very specific. So I'm guessing, I mean, you kind of said this before, but all, all these com- condemnations we see, that's not a word again, um, of Jews in, in the letters, it's specific groups. It's not like the whole Judaism. Um, yeah, of Judaism yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, th- we got to keep in mind that, like, the, the authors of the New Testament, for the most part, are Jews. <laughs> They're Jewish Christians. <laughs> They're Jews who have who've converted to Christ that don't abandon their Judaism. They've just been transformed in Christ, mm-hmm. right? So it would be when there is negative sort of speech about Jews, we got to remember that this is kind of an in-house debate. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And it's, it's unfortunately we missed this and this has led to a whole horrible history of anti-Semitism and supersessionism by Gentile Christians against Jews, where we think that we've replaced God's covenant people mm-hmm. in the church. And that's led to disastrous, like disastrous theological consequences. Um, it really has. So we got to be really careful about how we handle Jews and Judaism in the text. That's why I think the apocalyptic reading, uh, it's something that I think it does really well. Mm. Uh, so especially in a post-Holocaust world, I would say. Mm. Yeah. Some heavy stuff you bring up. Um, so I think that. We're, so you talk about this idea that the Jews um, generally are more people who love God. They're, they're not saying yeah, yeah. their works are saving them. What kind of evidence do you see for this? Obviously, because, you know, in the New Testament, you see it's very critical of this uh, legalistic sect of Judaism. So what evidence do you see for, like, this other um, idea of Judaism that you talk about a lot? Yeah, so, the, yeah, so Ed Sanders was the one who read this book, Paul and Palestinian Judaism, which is it's looking at different Second Temple Jewish texts. And seeing how they describe their relationship to God. So this is what we do. We tend to think that we know what Jews are like better than they actually know themselves. <laughs> it's a common <laughs> mistake. We do this with, with all sorts of groups. But they're telling us in various texts. Um, I can pull up. I can give you resources for this um, from Ed Sanders's book. To because uh, he kind of walks through all the different literature. Um, is that uh, these Jews are actually what he calls? So this is kind of a a fun uh, phrase to bring up at 
parties. Uh, <laughs> Jews were covenantal gnomus. Covenantal gnomus. Which means that they are, like I said, in a covenant with God. And that covenant actually frames the way they understand the Torah. They understand the Torah as God's instructions and God's speech to them. You, you really just see this in the Old Testament, too, <laughs> kind of in general, with the the Torah is something that's beautiful, and it's something um, that's, I forget which psalm it is, talking about the Torah as uh, sweeter than honey from the comb. So there's this really positive account of, of Torah being a gift from God that you're enjoined to learn from. It's not something that you're expected to, to do or you're not saved or something like that. I don't see that anywhere in the Old Testament, actually, where the Torah is described or the law is described as something that you have to do. Otherwise, God essentially abandons you forever. Mm -hmm. Covenant needs to frame the way that we understand the Torah for Jews. And I think that's how they understood it, too. Um, so, yeah, Ed Sanders' book is sort of the main one. And I can send you like a link to that or something afterward. Sure. It'd be awesome. Uh, so we have these couple ideas that we've talked about here, the, the apocalyptic reading. Um, I need to learn how to pronounce big words. Um, but <laughs> is there more? I'm guessing there's obviously, there's got to be a lot more here. Can you talk about some other ways that maybe this apocalyptic reading of Paul changes things? Uh, in relation to the traditional reading? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think the next thing I would talk about is the, it's account of the atonement is very different. Uh, so in the old reading, it's usually described in terms of penal substitution, which is basically that uh, you've sinned, fallen short of God's glory by doing bad stuff, and God is really mad at you, and is going to turn his wrath on you, and condemn you to hell for eternity. Um, that's kind of God's fundamental posture toward you as a sinner, his wrath usually described in retributive terms. Um, but good thing that Jesus shows up and takes on that wrath for us and satisfies the wrath of the Father. Um, but we only really become a part of it if we have faith in Jesus, right? So we, we get access to the good stuff. Christ gives us his righteousness, and Jesus gets what we deserve, right? So that tends to be the kind of the atonement that... Uh, is within the traditional reading of football. Now, the apocalyptic reading does something very different. <laughs> its account of the atonement sets up a very different problem. The problem is not that we've stepped out of line and need to be punished. The problem is that we've been constructed of flesh that's been invaded by evil mm. and sin and death, and it lives in us and it constrains us and it hurts us and so what we what we don't need to be punished what we need is radical transformation we need to be reconstituted and remade so what god does in the atonement is god incarnates in jesus christ assumes our fleshly sinful condition in the incarnation bears that condition lowers it and is executed and that stuff all the horrible stuff that's been enslaving and, and harming us and keeping us from being in, in fellowship with God is executed too. It's terminated. It's dead and it's buried. Okay. So that's the first part of the atonement. Jesus hmm. assumes what we are and dies. Now, okay. it doesn't really do anything if we, Jesus just, just dies, which is part of the problem with the old reading, the traditional reading, is that it's all just about the cross, right? 
we need to be resurrected too. So if we're left in the ground, that doesn't really do anything for us. So all of that bad stuff is terminated, but God the Father through the Spirit resurrects Jesus into a new life, free from sin, free from flesh, free from curse, free from Adamic reality. And we too get resurrected as we are enfolded into God through the Holy Spirit. Okay, so it's it's a it's a two part story. It's not just the cross. The atonement is the assumption termination, part one, the resurrection, part two, and then we're we're remade, mm. we're new creations. Paul says. So is would that, you? No. Yeah, I think I'm kind of tracking with you. So would you say yeah. that like the apocalyptic your your view here is it kind of like? There's a couple questions I have. One of them is like, so how, does this relate to us? Like we're in our sin, um, we're stuck. We have this sin inside of us, and then we die, um, and then the sin kind of. I'm trying to like, how does this relate to us? Like, does Jesus' story kind of like is it parallel to our story, and kind of how is it? How does it relate to us? Kind of, I'm tracking. Great question, and I that's something I need to clarify. So well spotted. How, how are we involved in this, right? Mm-hmm. So the word that apocalyptic scholars use for this is participation. So Paul uses in Christ language tons of times in his letters. And what he's meaning by that is um, we're affected by this story that I talked about of incarnation, death, resurrection, um, as we participate in Christ through the Holy Spirit. So we're joined to it irrevocably um, in a kind of, there's a spiritual sense to it where we've already been through this death and resurrection with Jesus in the past 3,000 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of spiritual sense to that. And this is literally going to, we're all going to (laughs) die, physically die. That is true. And our flesh is going to be in the ground and it's going to rot and and no longer exist, right? Um, Sorry for the, it took a really dismal turn. Um, (laughs) (laughs) All good. Everyone's going to die. But uh, what a bummer. I thought I was going to Yeah. But we'll also be finally resurrected with and in Christ too. So there's a sense in which this is indicating for us that we participated in Christ's death and resurrection already, in a sense, and will finally participate in a, participate in that death and resurrection um, at the end of all things. Okay. Yeah. So sense? yeah, I think I'm kind of tracking with you, obviously here. Um, you know, I have to read some books to get my mind wrapped around this completely. But I think a couple more questions I have here. I think another natural question here from this perspective is the question of why does Jesus die then? Like, what's the point of Jesus, um, God taking on the flesh and dying and then rising again? Like, couldn't have God done this some other way without, like, sacrifice? Yeah, good. that's a, another great question. Um, hypothetically, sure. It's just that God didn't choose to do it a different way, is what I would say. This is the means by which God has chosen to deal with an enslaved and, and damaged uh, cosmos, is to enter into it intimately, to be a part of it in a, in a human being, and to assume it and shoulder it. So there, there's a, it, this tells us something really magnificent, actually, about God and what God is like, right? God travels so far into our situation and risks everything really uh, and and humbles himself to the point of death on the cross for us this tells us just how much god loves us so deeply that he would become a human being and and assume all the stuff that's harming us and doesn't just sort of sit back and watch us and and do something different to solve the problem god actually becomes a part of it and um 
terminates it himself for mm -hmm. us, right? Yeah. I think that's just a beautiful account of like uh, what God is really like and, and who God is for us. So yeah, hypothetically, God probably could have done something else. God is all powerful. <laughs> um, but the, the fact that God chose to do this costly act, I think is pretty incredible. So. Awesome. Um, I, I see some questions and thoughts in the chat. We'll hit those at the end. Um, maybe this will be kind of like the last point of the apocalyptic Paul that we'll yeah, sure. uh, hit on. Um, I think another question here that's very natural that flows out of this is, you know, a big part of the gospel is we put our faith in Christ and our trust in him. Um, that's very, you know, the, the traditional view of the gospel. Does this change this um, this view of the atonement? Does this change the point? Like, what's the point of putting my faith in Christ over maybe just yeah. choosing not to? Yeah, so this, this reading is dependent upon a, a reconceptualization of the pistis or faith terms in Paul, which traditionally right get talked about in terms of faith in Christ. So there's a genitive construction in the Greek, pistis Christio, which is translated as traditionally as faith in Christ. So it's a genitive. Um, scholars starting kind of back in the 80s realized that it actually might make, and I'm thinking particularly of Richard Hayes here. He's a former Duke professor. He retired a couple years ago. Um, he's realizing that that genitive construction can be read in a different way as well. And it actually seems to make a lot more sense in Paul's text, which is the faithfulness of Christ as against faith in Christ. So when Paul's talking about faith up in Jesus in that connection, I think he's really talking about Jesus's faithfulness and, and Jesus's obedience and trust and fidelity to god so that's the thing that's saving us that's what's saving us that's actually a good kind of summary of that two-part account of the atonement that i was talking about we can talk about that in terms of jesus's faithfulness it's a faithful journey to death and then god faithfully resurrects jesus to his right hand so faith primarily for paul is about what jesus is doing now that doesn't mean faith doesn't matter for us it's actually crucial for us i think but it's situated different theologically, I think. Paul likes to talk about faith as a fruit of the Spirit. We forget this. Faith is a fruit of the Spirit in, in his list of the fruits of the Spirit. It's something that is our response to Jesus's faithfulness. It's, it's our response to what God has done in Jesus Christ. Um, and it's an assurance that we're actually on track for glory in Christ. It's assurance. That God's not going to let go of us or leave us. Um, so it's just situated differently. It's not a story. Faith is, isn't, for Paul, I don't think, a story about appropriating something or grasping something. Like God has this resource called salvation that we grasp when we ascend to faith. It's more about Jesus' own fidelity and then our response and our faithfulness that kind of echoes that fidelity of Christ. And it assures us that we're we're really in Christ. We're really located in him. And we don't need to worry about what's gonna happen in the future with God. God's got God's got us, essentially. So mm -hmm. it's okay. just conceptualization of faith, yeah. Yeah. So we covered three three points here. I think that before we get to some questions and some thoughts in the chat, um Let's talk about just a little bit of like people who would disagree with you. Like, what are some of the like yeah. most common objections that we'll have to this apocalyptic reading of Paul? Um, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. I think the first and most common one is that it's it's um, this emphasis on Jesus revealing what like fully what God is really like, and only there do we see 
what God is really like in the fullest sense, right? Mm -hmm. People think it's too discontinuous with the prior history sort of of Israel and the Old Testament. Um, so people get kind of freaked out by that, by committing to that really yeah. strongly. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think it's, uh, it's that legitimate because it's not erasing the history that's prior to Jesus. Remember what I was talking about with the retrospective move as against prospective? So Jesus reveals what God's really like. And now in the light of Jesus, we can look back and see all of the beautiful continuities and connections of Israel's history in particular and of the Old Testament that have been leading up to Christ all along. We see it with the precise clarity that we need to understand the history prior to Jesus. So there is a beautiful continuity there. It's just one you need in the light of that discontinuity, which is mm -hmm. Jesus. So he needs to show up and, and, and tell you what that prior history has been like all along. Mm. I don't think it's that strong of a criticism, but people really get worked up about it, that mm -hmm. we're just kind of destroying history or something. But Yeah, yeah. So we'll go for one more question here, kind of along that. Most scholars obviously don't hold to this kind of reading of Paul and um, yeah. kind of understand Paul. Like, why do you think that this is such like a minority position? Yeah, it's it's because it's fairly new. Um it, it, at least in the English-speaking world, it really came about. So I can talk a bit about the sort of antecedents of this reading in the history of scholarship. It, it's it came through to the the United States in particular through a scholar called J. Lewis Martin. He was at uh, Union. Uh, no, yes, Union. Um, and he wrote this essay called "Epistemology at the Turn of the Ages," which is essentially outlining what I was talking about with Jesus being kind of the center. Um, of Paul's gospel, the revelation of Jesus kind of being the center of that. Um, and he really kind of gathered around him a, a group of scholars and friends and students that started to kind of build on that kind of initial insight. Okay. This didn't happen that long ago. This is probably in the 80s, right? Um, but prior to that, in sort of German scholarship through the 19th and 20th century, you have people like Ernst Kesemann and... Um, J.C. Becker, I guess he was a bit later on, uh, and you have this sort of stuff going on in Germany a bit, and also sort of theologians and, and New Testament scholars like Karl Barth. Um, so it, the, the kind of roots of it are, are fairly, uh, they're, they're not super recent, but yeah, it just really didn't sort of uh become a school of, of of interpretation that sort of took on a form in like the society of biblical literature until lou martin showed up <laughs> um so it's kind of it's it's kind of due to him that this reading even exists so it's to me it's no wonder that it's so small but i think like i said before we were um before we were streaming that it's kind of a or maybe it was during the stream uh that it, there really is kind of a small kind of i think it was before but yeah um so that it, it's growing a bit um definitely so it's just young <laughs> i got you i got you all right let's go to some questions if you have questions or thoughts yeah, for john sure. um we'll throw some at him and it's the grill john depew section of the segment and feel free to grill him also for being a cubs fan that's also really <laughs> really tragic. We need to change his heart there. Um, Sahiro Sarabaya, thank you for the super chat. He says, um, without Jesus, how did Jewish Christians like Paul justify it? I don't know. 
exactly what he's saying here? Do you have an idea, John? No. How did, without Jesus, how did Jewish Christians, like Paul, justify it? Does that mean how, how did... Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, if you're listening, you can clarify your question. I'm saying if I don't we'll get to it, because I'm, I'm not sure what it is. I think that's the... That's the tricky part. Yeah, the mystery. Um, we'll go to something else for now. Uh, Dustin Elbray says, um, who was the law for the Israelites? Who are these books written for the Israelites? The Jews and the Hellenized were scattered abroad. Jesus was after the lost sheep, sheep of Israel. Um, he also said some would not die before he came back and all these things. These stories aren't for us guys. So interesting ideas here. What do you think about this comment, Joe? John, I called you Joe for some reason. <laughs> Close enough. Just one letter. <laughs> uh, who was the law for? The law, yeah, sure. Initially for Israelites, I think it's if you talk to any Jew who's alive now, the law is also for them. Um, and it was for the rabbis, and it was for all the Second Temple Jews. Um, this funky distinction between Israelites and who were apparently the real people for the laws for and Jews is bizarre to me, and I don't know where it's coming from. It's not coming from any scholarship that I've read. Um, so that's pretty much all I'll say about that. <laughs> okay. Um, fair enough. Um, a question from John. This is an interesting question. Um, from John, what did God risk? I'm guessing it's referring to our view of the atonement and like um, God taking the flesh. So would you say that God risked something by coming down to earth? Well, it's costly. I mean, that's the way that... Uh, theologians often talk about it that when you when you are when god is is humbling himself through jesus christ uh and submitting to it death there is something kind of uh risky about that and i think the risk is uh god is risking his very self to be with and for us <laughs> it's i know it sounds weird and sound it kind of May rub people the wrong way, but I think that's really what's going on. God is actually risking his very self. That's that's what the gift is of the incarnation, is God's very self to us in a, in a human being, right? Um, so yeah, it's 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 risky because it's God's putting himself on the line for us. And uh, I think that's a wonderful gift. <laughs> so Fair enough. Um, we have an interesting question here. Susan Limbo, she says um, you're in charge of Christian education at your church. Um, she says that your church allows for um, homosexual and female ordinations. Uh, what do you see in the Bible that, I mean, she just condones this, but like, obviously these are important topics, you know, that are in the church. So I don't know. I obviously, I don't really know what you theological perspective. Can you talk a little bit about this? Like, I'm not exactly sure where she's coming from, but just kind of get your thoughts you on it. You read my church website, uh, which is, we do have two female pastors on staff. One of whom is a lesbian. Um, so I'm all for embracing LGBTQI people fully included in the church and in terms of leadership status. Um, I'm not willing to get into a conversation about whether or not the Bible condones this stuff right now um, because I don't know this person. Um, I only really like talking about this sort of stuff in a relationship of trust with somebody mm -hmm. because that's kind of where I come from in terms of pastoral engagement. Um, I think it's a bit odd to come on to a, a show that's about apocalyptic Paul to ask about something to do with homosexuality because he read my church website. Um, so 
Um, I would rather not answer that. Stephen Seen says, John. Maybe he's actually rooting for a different John. It's probably not oh, you. Man. I'm just kidding. You're pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> serious question here from Salem. is how in the world can I be as smart as John? Uh, um, uh, I'm trying to give a witty answer, and it's already I'm already taking too much time. So humble of you. So humble yeah. of you. Yeah, I'm. I'm not as smart as you think, Salem. I'm fortunate to have a good education, and that's kind of it. <laughs> Nothing special, man. But I appreciate you thinking that I'm smart. Uh, John V. I think he's clarifying his question here. Um, says, if God risked Himself, is it possible that He could have failed and lost um, Himself? I'm not interested in speculating about that. The fact is that God didn't, so I don't really, I'm not concerned about that. So, <laughs> sorry for the short answers. I'm just no, no. I mean, be quick. I'm just, I'm just pulling questions up. You're yeah. here. It's your time. Um, you're doing the hard part. So, uh, totally, you don't feel like don't feel any pressure to answer things. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So, and now I'm going to force you to answer this question from Sidney Frater Sabar, which says yes, yes. I have no idea what that's. Oh, uh, the person who asked, uh, he asked the super chat, but I don't think I don't know what he's. But he just said yes. Yeah, I don't really know. Okay. Well, you can clarify, Seifert. I would love to answer your question. Um, okay, we have a we have a Paul mythicist here named Nick Quint who is questioning <laughs> the existence of Paul. No, Nick, Paul did not exist. <sighs> Are you sure? Nah, Paul was a Paul was a dude that existed, not in space, but on Earth. Um, what if, yeah? <laughs> Do you think there are people who actually think Paul didn't exist? Is this I'm sure. Movie? I'm sure there's there's got to be. Obviously, for you guys who are listening, if you don't know Nick Quint, this yeah. is not what Nick believes. Nick's no, yeah, this is a joke. This is a joke. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's got to be people out there that I know. You know I guess the fact that there are Jesus mythicists too indicates if, that there are probably Paul or just like anyone in the Bible didn't exist or something like that. This sort yeah. of extreme example of that or extreme stance. I don't know. Well, I mean, there, there's philosophers that deny their own existence. So if they don't exist, oh, yeah, then that's Paul true. didn't yeah. exist. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. That's true. Okay. Um, I think – Let's, I'm curious about Jesus mythicism in, for for a second here. You, we have like a few minutes left. Obviously, this yeah. isn't related, but like, can I, can you give me your thoughts on like this whole idea of Jesus mythicism? Yeah, um, I'm not an expert on this stuff. I think the way that they read the Pauline data is absurd, <laughs> just from purely from a sort of exegetical. Just purely in terms of how they're exegeting specific texts that talk about Jesus' crucifixion, like Jesus being crucified by the powers, they take that to mean this is a crucifixion happening essentially in outer space mm -hmm. by demons crucifying Jesus. That's, to be quite honest, it's laughable. Um, and it, it's dependent upon, really, a first, a certain dating of this text called the Ascension of Isaiah, these texts called the Ascension of Isaiah, very, it's dependent upon a very early dating that no one actually thinks. 
Um, and it's dependent upon the idea that Paul would have knowledge and would be using the Ascension of Isaiah, referencing it and quoting it in his text to talk about Jesus getting crucified in outer space. Um, there are tons of gaps in that. And it's, uh, yeah, I, I could go on about how irritating this sort of mythicist scholarship, quote unquote scholarship is. We'll save that for another day. <laughs> I'm not the person who you should interview about that, though. I think <laughs> Laura would be much better on that. Um, she knows the arguments much better than I do. Uh, Nick here has an interesting question. He says, did Paul write the 13 epistles attributed to him? And yes, there are fringes among the fringes who think that Paul didn't exist. People are crazy. And just in case anyone doesn't know this whole 13 epistle thing, I, John knows this issue better than I do, obviously. But there's seven epistles that just about everyone agrees Paul's, Paul wrote. There's three that are kind of like, eh. And then there's three that are like, yeah. not many people believe yeah. Paul wrote them. So what are your thoughts on Paul and the epistleship, authorship of the epistles? Yeah, yeah. I'm a, a yeah, I am a 10 letter guy. Uh, I don't think the pastorals are authentically Paul. I know that Nick is kind of, that's a kind of a tentative position, I think. I think he's said in the past that for now he's persuaded, but he's not sort of completely holding on to it. Um, I know that Nick's read Framing Paul by Douglas Campbell because he's referenced it before. I think I'm pretty persuaded by his take on the pastorals, which is they're much later, but they are not much later, but they're later. Um, but they are really important texts for understanding kind of the, the development of Paul and Christianity. Because they're really kind of uh, texts that are taking really the heart of Paul's gospel. I think all of them do. And using them for particular circumstances where the church is kind of being threatened with heresy. So you have heretics kind of running around causing trouble. And it's kind of a, a more conservative, quote unquote, I don't know if orthodox is the right term. But it's, it's kind of a, a, a more institutional Paul, I guess. Um, because you have these threats of heresy kind of from the outside. So it's, it's a bit more kind of bordered, I guess. But the heart of Paul's there. I just don't think Paul wrote them. I don't think they're like faked or something. I think they actually have real importance for the, the church. So mm. uh, We have one really good question here to wrap things up. But before we get there, I'm just curious. Um, you know, um, so I think for a lot of Christians, like the first time I ever heard about this idea that Paul might have not wrote all 13 epistles it might be a little troubling you know because you have this idea of the bible is the word of god and obviously we're gonna get into all kinds of other things um in this question yeah yeah, yeah. you know we don't really want to get too much here in the last five minutes but like how do you look at like the idea that well maybe paul didn't write first and second timothy and i believe it's titus like how does that does that change anything for you and like why are these things in the bible paul didn't write them uh yeah it doesn't change i'm not anxious about it because I'm, I'm not an inerrantist uh so i i, I don't have to I, I, it doesn't create a kind of like, oh no, this is like everything else is going to kind of fall apart if, if we don't if we don't think Paul's written the, the pastorals or something. Although I don't think that's really what inheritors think. But I'm mostly joking. But uh, I, I really just don't. It's not going to affect me one way or the other. I'd be happy if Paul actually wrote them. I don't think he did. Uh, but yeah, it, the fact that he hasn't doesn't. It's still it's still a part of the canon. It's still a part of the church's scriptures so it doesn't decrease its status just because paul didn't write it for me it's still a part of the bible and it's still something that i'm supposed to to be reading and proclaiming and, and, and preaching and, and trying to respond to in faith so yeah last last question here we're gonna get really difficult here it says why is laura so much smarter than you oh yeah good question uh and 
very well put. Uh, I like how you how Stevens phrased that. Uh, <laughs> guess Lori is much smarter than me, and it's probably. Uh, I don't know. I don't have a good reason. God, God <laughs> gifted her with abilities that exceed my own abilities and also my own intelligence. So it's a gift of God. <laughs> good stuff, bro. Good stuff. Um, let's just go. Do you have any like kind of like last thoughts, things we didn't get to um, that you want to bring up before we wrap things up here? Um, yeah, I, I think that it's interesting that the, uh, I've been talking about sort of what I think Paul's gospel is, which is it's a revelation of Jesus Christ by the spirit. And it's something that we participate in and delivered from sin and death and powers and all that sort of stuff. And it's a really sort of liberative kind of the gospel. I think it's the center of, of, of really what Christianity is all about. I don't think this is just about what Paul thinks. I think this is what Christianity is. Um, I think it's kind of non-negotiable for me. And it's, I, I'm, it's interesting when we're talking about this wonderful, liberative, explosive thing that I think has taken place in Jesus. And it's so tempting to go into kind of like negotiable stuff pretty quickly and be like what about this what about this what about this what about this 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 instead of saying oh we can agree on this that jesus has died and been raised for us and we we participate in that i think everyone can agree on that he's a christian mm -hmm. and maybe kind of not getting too hung up on the negotiables and, and more how are we confessing and witnessing to and in the way that we live in the way that we speak to this gospel that we're a part of maybe there could be more kind of coming together if we did that a bit more often hmm. well i appreciate your thoughts john um really appreciate the time really interesting perspective here that you bring obviously just so you guys know just because i bring john on doesn't mean i agree word for word that um John, right? Yeah. I definitely don't agree with being a Cubs fan. Um, so that's, definitely, that's, that's something I, I'm sure that John's wrong about. We the Cubs are yeah. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. We do agree that we're smarter than me, though. That's something we agree on. <laughs> there's, there's one thing that I know I agree with John about. So, you know, we'll, we'll take what we can get. I really appreciate this. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I really appreciated this, John. There's so much interesting stuff here. I'm curious. All right. Just one thing. What's one book that you'd recommend for someone that wants to like look into this whole apocalyptic Paul idea? Um, I'd pick up uh, Pauline Dogmatics. It's a big book, but it's also kind of written in a fairly accessible way. I mean, you have to kind of already be interested in Paul and stuff to kind of really uh, digest it in the way that it's kind of meant to be digested. But I, I would go with Pauline Dogmatics, The Triumph of God's Love. Douglas Campbell. Mm. Um, it was released, I guess, early this year. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I would kind of start there. Awesome. Good stuff, bro. Really appreciated the time, John. Uh, lots of fun stuff. There's a link down below to follow John. I think it's on Twitter. Um, definitely decent follow. Uh, this is it here in Apologetics, everyone. Welcome. Um, thanks for tuning in. Be sure to like, subscribe, you can support us on Patreon. That's it. John, appreciate your time, man. Really enjoyed it. A lot. For sure. Yeah. Uh, Sounds good. Man. All right. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Good.